0: If you have zero money and you add a dollar, the value of that dollar is 100%. If you have $10 and you add a dollar, the value of that extra dollar is 10%. If have $100, it's 1%. $1,000, 0.1%. So as you accumulate money, the valuation of an additional dollar diminishes. So if you don't have a cause that inspires you, that's meaningful, that's philanthropic, that goes in the opposite direction, to counterbalance, the devaluation of the money, you will plateau or you'll buy clutter.
1: Like it or not, you, me, and everyone else—we all have a relationship with money, and for the most part, it's a complicated one. My name's Sean Maslick. Welcome to the most hated F-word podcast. As a certified financial planner, I want to take you on a journey as we throw out the technical finance books and shift our focus towards our minds, our money, and what matters most. If you're looking to improve your relationship with money and build true wealth, you're in the right spot. Finances. Does not need to be the most hated F word. Welcome back to the most hated F word podcast. I am pleased you are here for another episode with another fantastic guest. For those of you who are listening each week, last week I did not release an episode. I was off in Denver as myself and RootHub were doing a presentation, a workshop on uncovering our money stories, and it was fantastic. We discussed the value of moving from an unexamined story to an examined story, and then together with all the participants, we co-created and wrote, and RootHub sang a song made up right on the spot based on all the attendees' experience. It was fantastic. It was wonderful. On that note, myself and RootHub, we collaborated over the last year and made a full-length music album based on my journey through examining my money story. And we are in the process of recording a podcast as we go behind the scenes, talking about each episode, and then we'll play the songs on the podcast. So that one will be coming out in the next couple of weeks. Looking forward to that episode. If you have two, three, or four minutes, I would love if you can head over to Apple Podcast and leave a review. The reviews definitely help, and it makes us know that you're enjoying the show. If you have an episode you think a friend, colleague, or family member would enjoy, send it over to them. I would appreciate it. So today, our guest is Dr. John Demartini, a world-leading human behavior specialist, which is one of the reasons why I thought it'd be great to have him on the show, is that dealing and navigating a relationship with money often comes down to human behavior. Well, maybe not often, almost all the time it comes down to understanding our human behaviors and understanding why we make decisions. He's a best-selling author and educator and the founder of what he calls the Demartini Method, which we do get into during this podcast. He has authored over 40 books. That is a lot of books, 40 books that have been translated in 39 different countries. And he's presented alongside some of the most influential people like Sir Richard Branson, Deepak Chopra, and many more. This conversation was interesting for me because we really talked about understanding how we can wrestle with the discomforts within ourselves so that we can make more sense of our values and our highest values so that we can start living this more authentic life. And Dr. John Demartini was part of The Secret Book. For those of you who are familiar with The Secret Book, you know, a big sentiment from that book was The Power of Positive Thinking. And as I was looking into Dr. Demartini's work, I was very interested that he doesn't avoid looking at the difficult parts of our lives or the discomforts that come with a reflective process. And this really came through during our episode. And so that must've been something that I got wrong when I saw the secret book where it was all around the power of positive thinking. You'll hear in this episode, Dr. Demartini is big on looking on the downside of our experiences and so forth. We talk about how we can sustainably change our deeply rooted behaviors in life and around money. We also talk about understanding the link and the correlation between our wealth and our values and how really taking the time to observe ourselves, how we spend our money and what we value so that we can bring them more in congruency so that we can live more authentic life where we feel inspired to do things that make our life worth living. Dr. Demartini talks about how motivation is often not enough. And I thought that was quite interesting. And I appreciate his approach to this idea that motivation by itself isn't enough for an enriched life. We talk about the value of prioritizing asset making, which is incredibly important when we look at our financial picture is how do we build assets so that we can continue to build our wealth from a financial perspective? And we talk about how wealth is not just a financial perspective. It is a very important part of it. But the original meaning behind wealth is actually well-being. And we discussed that in so many other interesting conversations during this episode. I hope you enjoy this fascinating conversation with Dr. John Demartini. Dr. DiMartini, welcome to the show. <laughs> Thank you for having me. I am looking forward to it. On this show, we really like to examine these relationships that we have with money. Often, myself included, <laughs> we find ourselves struggling to make behavior changes around our money, or we struggle to have the ability to create these relationships with money that we feel contentment around. So I'm really looking forward to dive into all the research that you've done, the practical experience on human behavior. I thought we'd first start a bit of the background with you, but also bringing in your De Martini method. In science and research, a lot the intent is to always build upon the existing knowledge. And so, the great thing about published research is that we can then build on and continue to progress. In your bio, it says the De Martini method is a revolutionary tool in modern psychology. When we look at the De Martini method, what makes it revolutionary in modern psychology? Today, in psychology,
0: and for many, many decades, we have a victim mentality, a false causality. We blame outside circumstances, and we look for things on the outside to save us. That's in looking within. And we have a predator-prey mentality, perpetrator-innocent victim mentality, and no accountability. I've been working for these last five decades on How to find the hidden order in the apparent chaos and how to find out why we're creating these outcomes and manifesting or attracting these events, which are apparently labeled random, but they're not. There is a hidden order to them. And so I've been developing this, and it's not from necessarily sitting on these shoulders of other people. It's clinically working with people for the last five decades. So it is revolutionary. It is changing. There are thousands of people using it now, millions of people across the world from all of them because there's, I have 7,000 facilitators around the world teaching it and sharing it now. It is having an impact. And I really believe that there's a hidden order and something to be grateful for in your life that you may be overlooking. Let me give you an example. Mm-hmm. If you're infatuated with somebody or something, you're conscious of the upsides and unconscious of the downsides. And if you're resentful of something, you're conscious of the downside and unconscious of the upside. You're not fully conscious. You're not seeing both sides. When you first meet some beautiful woman or man and you're enamored with them and you're blind to the downsides, a day, a week, a month, a year, or five years later, you're gonna find out they got another side. <laughs> so why have the wisdom of the ages with the aging process? You can have the wisdom of the ages without it by asking proper questions to become cognizant of what you're unconscious of, to be fully conscious. So you're present with somebody instead of fantasizing and then punishing them when they don't live up to the fantasy you started with. So this is a series of questions. The Demartini Method is a series of questions that hold you accountable for your own experiences. They help you see things in balance and help you be mindful and fully conscious instead of only conscious, unconsciously divided. And allow you to appreciate the magnificence that sits there beyond what you first fantasized. It's really holding people accountable. There's no victim. I've been teaching a program called the Breakthrough Experience for 34 years, and I've taken a lot of people through that all over the world. I've been in 181 countries speaking, so I've yet to see somebody that walks in there and that thinks they're a victim not walk out with being thankful. And it doesn't matter what their body experiences. They have the capacity to ask new questions. We have control over our perception, decisions, and actions in life, and we can transform our perceptions, transform our decisions, and our actions in our life. So we have the capacity to take whatever happens and turn it from in the way to on the way. From something that is holding us back to something that's fueling us for opportunity. And it has nothing to do with anything on the outside. Everything to do with what you perceived. And you have control over your perceptions. So I'm helping people ask questions and make them conscious of what they've been unconscious of. To see both sides of an event so it's not distracting them. It liberates them. Anything you infatuate with or resent is going to occupy space and time in your mind. It's going to run you until you balance the equation and liberate yourself from those emotions that hold you back. It is revolutionary because most people run their story, want to run their story, run their story, malleably alter the story, dramatize the story, have people listen to their drama, blame things on the outside, look for something on the outside. It's just crazy. I've recently been asked to be in a movie on The Respondent. Over this issue with the uh, Johnny Depp and his his Amber mm. horse or whatever, If it's about that topic. Are, are they both victims? Are they created this dynamic? You know, how to transcend that drama and be able to be inspired
1: by your life is what I'm interested in. That's what my psychology is about. Okay. Wow. So many different doors we can go there. Yeah. You know, th- this idea of looking for things on the outside, as you said from the start, really resonates with me. If I relate this back to our relationships with money often we have these unconscious scripts that have been hardwired into us at a young age for whatever reason, but they're playing unconsciously. And it might be, I'm not good enough for money, or only, only corrupt people have money, or money will make us evil. And so it seems to bring us to this unconscious victim mentality. And like you said, what we kind of that creates the lens on how we see things. I'm hearing you say, once we start to appreciate, once we start to notice, we kind of take ourselves out of this victimhood and this fantasy world into the reality. And when we become more mindful, when we look at this from a financial, like a relationship with money side, like, so let's say we go in from this unexamined money story or this unexamined relationship with money, trying to move to an examined one where we start to understand, almost use money as a portal into the unexamined parts of us. What questions do the Martini method like, what, what kind of questions would people have or ask themselves as part of the Martini method if we were trying to bring more awareness to our relationship with money and our money story that is largely unconscious to us, ourselves? 45 years ago, I realized why
0: some people were doing what they said others other not A lot of people aren't walking or talk; they're limping their lives. And what was the difference? And I found a very common thread. And that was the congruency between what they said they were going to do and wanting to do as a goal and objective and their real, true, highest value. Everybody has a set of priorities, a set of values in their life, things that are most important to least important. And that's fingerprint specific to them at that moment. Even though it's evolving at that moment, it's real. And every decision they make is based on what they think will give the greatest advantage or disadvantage at that moment. And they filter their reality, their perceptions through it, and they take actions accordingly. So knowing what those set of values are is crucial because anytime you set a goal that is not aligned and congruent with what you value most, where you're spontaneously inspired to act, and where you're disciplined, reliable, and focused, and where your heart and soul and your your, your ontological identity revolves around, you're automatically going to beat yourself up if you set a goal, anything less. Anytime you go down the list of values, they become more extrinsic instead of intrinsic. And you need motivation to keep you on them. Anything you need motivation to be reminded to do is not important to you. Don't waste your time on things that aren't inspired and intrinsically driven from within. Delegate those. I learned a long time ago that if you want an inspired life, you want to delegate everything other than what is inspiring to you. And people say, well, I can't afford to do that. Yes, they can. I became fortunate because I did. But if you keep doing low priority things, you'll devalue yourself. You'll wonder why you're procrastinating, hesitating, frustrating. And this is where money comes in. Money is spent according to the hierarchy of your values. So every dollar you get, you tell me what your values are, and I'll tell you how you're going to spend it. And if you mm-hmm. fantasize, I want to be financially dependent, but you don't have a high value on that, you're not going to be there. You're gonna spend your money according to what you value most. I know people that have a very high value of going to the spa, going to get their nails done, going and getting shoes and Jimmy Choo shoes, and this and that, they can't pay their bills. They can't pay their rent. They have a higher value on that than on their rent. And they have no savings, they have no taxes paid, and then they end up living beyond their means because they have a hierarchy of values that have a higher value on that than on the other aspects. So you tell me what your values are. I determined your values, I can tell you where your money's going. The higher than your values dictate your financial destiny. So most people don't know what their values are. They live in a fantasy about what they think it is. Mm. They wonder why they beat themselves up. They can't seem to get ahead because they don't really have a value in buying assets that accumulate and put money back in their pocket. They buy consumables that depreciate and they spend it on things that go for immediate gratification. They don't defer gratification to go well and they never build incremental momentum to crescendo of fortune and they wonder why they don't have any wealth. I, I have to share this interesting story. Mm-hmm. I was in uh, South Africa, Johannesburg. I was speaking at a big conference there for about 5,000 people. It was myself and Richard Branch I was opening, he was closing. And I asked people, how many of you want to be financially independent? 5,000 people put their hands up. Some put the two hands, some put their leg up in the air. <laughs> and, you know, they're all exuberant. They're all elated about the fantasy. And then I said, how many of you are financially independent with your passive income exceeds your active income right now? Ooh, all the hands went down. Seven hands were up. That's it, out of 5,000. I said, now this is a group of entrepreneurs. to are people that are businesses. each are people. You would think that there'd be a higher probability than you know, the, the housewife sitting at home if that was the, in this list. But here we only have seven out of 5,000. Less than 1% become financially independent globally. So how come 1% or less compared to... Everybody with their hand up, that means 99% of the people are living in a fantasy and aren't grounded about what, what their real values are. So I said, here's what I want you to do. Pull out a piece of paper. I'm going to send you 10 million US dollars. I want you to imagine and receive that 10 million US dollars. And you have one minute, 60 seconds to write down from that $10 million. If, you, if I give you one minute, 60 seconds, as fast as you can, write down the 10 things you would do with that money once you receive it. 10 million in your hand. The 10, the 10 things you would do in 60 seconds, what would you do with that money quick? And I had them quickly running and pulling that piece of paper out, writing it down. Do, 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 do. I said, now hand that list to the person you left and calculate how much of that money is now an asset that's actually going to grow for them. Left 20 to 80% of the assets I gave them, $10 million, 20 to 80% was left. That means they bought a new car, they bought a new house, they bought new clothes, they went on that trip, they bought this new this, they, they consumed, they were addicted to the lifestyles of the rich and famous, living beyond their means, and did not buy assets except a handful of people in that room. I said, "That is the reason why you're not financially imppaired. You can live a, fantasize. you can blame your grandmother and your mother and your church, and you can blame everybody on the outside, but until you have a hierarchy of values. To actually truly value wealth building and care enough about humanity to serve vast numbers of people and contribute efficiently, effectively, a product, service, or idea to be able to remunerate yourself and to be able to value money without infatuations, resentments, and be able to go out there and actually invest in quality companies or quality real estate or a true asset accumulation. It's a fantasy. Wake up. Today's the day you decide do you really want to be financially independent or do you want to keep? being fed fantasies by quick get rich schemes or whatever in your life and not get grounded. The whole room is sitting there in shock. And they go, whoa. I said, today's the day. Today, decide. And I'm going to give you some tools to do that, but you have to decide, is this really what you want to do or is this a fantasy? Because if you want to go and live the lifestyle of rich and famous, you're going to decrescendo your life as you get older in life. Because you're going to be spending it and then eventually you're going to get 60s and 70s. You can't work as much. You're going to have to light go down in value instead of buying assets that'll just keep growing faster than you can even spend them. And then you can be philanthropic and contribute to people in a way you've never even imagined today. It's up to you. Divert your gratification will build you a fortune and immediate gratification will destroy, destroy you. Your amygdala is an animal behavior. It's not going to build you wealth. But strategic planning and the executive center with foresight and planning and being patient
1: and methodical and not going to quick get rich schemes, they're going to build wealth that way. What do you want? Living in this fantasy world, I, I appreciate that, that context because I think the things you explained often have us living in there. And I think even people who might be building a lot of wealth through assets at times could be living in a fantasy world if their values are incongruent and they're overcompensating in, say, wealth building. With that thought of stepping out of this re- our fantasy world, you talk about how motivation, you mentioned motivation, we don't have this motivation problem. So then how do we start to, like, say I'm in that audience, I did the exercise, I wrote down things that weren't asset building, lifestyles rich and famous because I'm influenced by these societal scripts that I see on TV, news, et cetera. But now I'm like, okay, yeah, actually, I'm starting to see this. How do people wrestle with that discomfort that comes with being like, oh, I've been doing this wrong or, oh, that kind of is scary down there. Is it through questioning? How do you help people explore and wrestle and lean in with that discomfort in that moment when they're sitting there in Johannesburg? Anything that's high in your values, you embrace pain and pledge in the pursuit of.
0: Anything that's low in your values, you're going to want to avoid pain and seek pleasure. You're going to avoid the predator and seek the prey. So first thing to do is to get a higher value on wealth building than you have currently. And the way I do it is I take the, the proven action steps that have stood the test of time in wealth building. And I sit down and list those in a priority, like taking a portion of your income and setting it aside and buying assets. Mm-hmm. Like not robbing those assets, paying your taxes and appropriately and methodically doing things electronically so there's no emotion associated. It's just done. These are action steps that have proven to work. And ask how specifically is doing those actions going to help you fulfill what your current highest value is because if you stack up enough advantages over disadvantages, it rises up on your value list. And whatever's highest on your values, you spontaneously do, and you don't need motivation for it. Mm. Motivation's a symptom, never a solution for accomplishment. It's a symptom. I don't need motivation to do what I'm doing. I've been doing it 50 years. I don't need motivation. In fact, I've given people, i said, if you can find anybody that's had to motivate me to teach in the last 50 years to get a free seminar, then you won't find it. I don't need motivation for that. But anything I need motivation for I delegate to somebody else who loves doing it. And that's a very powerful tool if you get that mastered. I let go of anything I require motivation to do. Anything that I need extrinsic drive to do, I give it to somebody else to do. And I go on and focus what I spontaneously am excellent at, my core competence, and do that in a way that serves vast numbers of people. And fortunes are made that way. So you give yourself permission to be yourself. That's where you're most authentic. You're not authentic doing low-priority stuff that's frustrating that you got to do, have to do. Anytime you hear yourself saying, I got to do that, I have to do that, I must do that, I should do that, I ought to do that, I'm supposed to do that, I need to do it, it ain't you. It's an injected value of some outer authority making you live deontologically in duty instead of ontologically with inspiration. So prioritizing your life, if you don't fill your day with high-priority actions that inspire you, it's going to fill up with low-priority distractions that don't. And if you don't pursue high-priority actions that serve vast numbers of people, don't expect wealth, it's not real. You have to care enough about humanity. I was speaking at a church one time, and there's a, a lot of people in different financial positions there. And I, I said, if you're poor, it's because you're not caring about human beings. You're caring about yourself, and you're wallowing in your stuff. And they go, well, wait a minute you now. <laughs> yeah, I don't like that. I said, I don't care if you like it. Stop and reflect. How many people have you served today? Uh, uh, I haven't. I said, and, and uh, wh- wh- who's wealthy here? Uh, how many people do you serve?" Well, I have a business. So how many did you serve? About 60 people today. And over here, and I showed them the relationship. And I don't mean altruistically sacrificing people. I mean sustainable and fair exchange between you and other people where you want to go to work and they want to get your service. You master that. There's fortunes be made. And there's never a lack of economics and never a lack of money for people out there if they care about human beings to meet their needs more effectively and efficiently than the competitor. And that takes caring about people. Caring is selling. And caring is what keeps rings on finger. If you're careless, you'll talk down to your client. If you're careful, you'll walk on eggshells around them. But if you're caring, you'll put the ring on the finger, as they say. And you end up having a relationship that's long-term with the client. And you build wealth because
1: they want to continue to do business and refer people and you want to continue to do service to them if it's a fair exchange. I feel like a lot of this conversation is around like stepping out of to what you said, this fantasy world, to being more understanding ourselves so that we can live that authentic self with those highest values, where we know the priority of the values, where, to use your word, is we can be ourself. And I agree that that's a comforting position. We kind of talked about the, the difficulty to to wrestle with that, to get there at sometimes, and you address that. But you use the word reflection. So I guess where this is, is what role, if any at all, does reflection play in this process of Because you said another thing, we evolve our values. So as we grow, we have to somehow examine ourselves so that we're not living in these outdated scripts or these outdated stories. So the question is, what role, if any, does reflection play on this ability to step out of this fantasy world where we can align or become more congruent with our actions and our money and our, our beliefs? Well, reflective awareness is one of the highest states of awareness. Let's take a look at what our values
0: are derived from, and let's take a look how reflective awareness plays in it. If I'm infatuated with somebody, and I have them on a pedestal, and I'm conscious of their upsides and unconscious of their downsides, in respect to them and reflecting there, I will minimize myself to them. Mm. If anybody's been with an infatuated person, I know that they'll start to sacrifice what's important to them to be with that person through fear of loss of them. So they'll minimize themselves to that person they've got on this pedestal. Why do they they do that? They're afraid to lose what they're infatuated with because it's got a dopamine association with it. It's got oxytocin, serotonin, it's got vasopressin, it's got all these chemical compounds. It's like, I got to have that. I'm afraid of losing it because it represents prey, and I'll go starving if I don't have that. So the fear of the loss of it makes you addict to that with an impulse. It's an amygdala response. So we fear the loss of that, and we, we minimize ourselves because we don't want to lose it. And people do this in relationship. We do it with customers if we're infatuated with them, we do it with new relationships when we're infatuated. And we'll sacrifice what's important to us for them altruistically and minimize ourselves, exaggerate them. And that's an inauthentic state for us. It's inauthentic for them. It's not who they are. We'll find that out later. It's not who we are. It's inauthentic. And we're deflecting what we see in them. We're too humble to admit what we see in them inside us. We're not being ourselves. The truth is, the seer, the seeing, and the seen are the same. What we see in them is inside us, but we're too humble to admit it. Can you say that one again? The seer, the seeing, and the seen are the same. comes from Aristotle. And the moment we realize that what we see in them is inside us, we level the playing field and we have sustainable fair exchange. Otherwise, we'll sacrifice to them and eventually resent them to get our life back. And the same thing over here on the resentment side. If we're resenting and looking down at our customer and exaggerating us, we're not meeting their needs. And now we'll project onto them, you know, that they're beneath us. And we're now projecting expectations of them. They're supposed to live in our values. Anytime we look down on somebody and exaggerate ourselves inauthentically and expect them to live in our values, we have futility. They're not going to live in our values. Our customers aren't going to live in your fantasy about what you think the world needs. And the same thing, when you sacrifice them, you're not going to have a profit. You're going to have futility. So neither of those are authentic. Neither of those are reflective. They're deflections. You're too proud or too humble to admit what you see in the world around you, inside you. The second you have reflective awareness and realize the seeer, the seeing and the seen are the same both sides, and they're no longer on pedestals and pits. They're in your heart. Mm -hmm. And you see what you see in them is inside you. Now you have sustainable, equitable, equanimity, and equity and fair exchange. That sustains every symptom in business, every symptom in our financial management, every symptom in our relationship, our physiological and our psychological symptoms, our feedback mechanisms to get us authentic, level the playing field, learn how to have reflective awareness, go back to the executive center where we're objective, which means neutral, and that's where we excel. Everything is trying to get us to that state. And when we start to see life that way, we're grateful for whatever happens because it's always on the way, not in the way. And we grow in our self-worth because every time we live by our highest values, we grow self-worth. Every time we live by lower values, we lower self-worth. And the reason we lower self-worth is to frustrate us, bang our head against the wall, to get us off from those distractions
1: and get onto the focus again, back to the priority. With your experience and your research and 50 years of doing this work, can we get to that level of authenticity, the highest values, like you said from the top, moving from a victim when we realize that hey, it's not necessarily things outside of me, it's in within me that I can control. Can we get to that state? I don't know if this is all or one or all or nothing question, but can we get there without this reflective process? They're simultaneous. About
0: 37, eight years ago, I I started noticing that whenever I met somebody, if I had an emotional reaction, either an infatuation or resentment, I noticed that I would either put them on a pedestal and minimize or put them in a pit and exaggerate. And then days or weeks later, I realized that what I was judging them for, I was realizing was a reflection of me. And this has been stated even in biblical statements in the New Testament, talked about Romans 2 it 1. It talked about that what we see in others that we judge in others is just what we do ourselves. So this is an ancient proverb. But what I did is instead of waiting for people to push my buttons and cause me reactions, I decided to go to the Oxford Dictionary, which is the largest dictionary I could find. And I underlined every possible human behavioral trait that I could find in a human being based on our language, English language. And I found 4,628 traits. Yes, I'm a neurotic about numbers. I'm a mathematician. So 4,628 traits in that Oxford Dictionary. A guy named Gordon Alport found 4,000-something. I found a few more in it, but he did it earlier than I did, so it's probably a bigger number of words by then. And I went in there and I underlined them, and then I thought, of who do I know that represents that behavior the most? And then I asked, where and when do I display or demonstrate that behavior? To whom and who perceives me that way to the degree that I see in this individual? And I went through months after months of doing this, to realize that there was nothing missing me. I had every trait and I didn't have to have somebody push my button to realize it in the future, just dig and find it in advance. Foresight's much wiser than hindsight. So I preempted it and I noticed that the people around me, instead of pushing my buttons, there was no buttons to push. I was able to be able to just be present with them. I wasn't trying to avoid the person or seek the person. I was just seeing my reflection in the person. In that state, you're more likely to be in your executive center, more likely to be objective, more likely to be able to see both sides, less likely to be emotionally active. Oh, my God, predator, prey, impulse, instinct, and all that, are instinct, impulse, and I'm present. That's the place where things happen. and That is totally trainable, totally masterful, and totally something that people can do. And they don't have to do it in the intensity than I do. They can do it in little increments, but it can change their life and re-empower their, their position. And there's absolutely nothing stopping people from building wealth in their life. I had a guy that was only making, God is very little, I mean, ton, just ridiculously small amounts of money. And we started him saving him at a nickel, a nickel. And he got into a dime and he got it to 25 cents and he got into a finally a dollar. And it took him 20 years to get it to $800. And now 30 years, it's $14,000 per month. He was a street man. He's now independent. It doesn't matter where you start. It doesn't matter where you come in from. It doesn't matter. Any of those things. What matters is, are you going to apply the principles that stand the test of time starting today and change the trajectory of your existence? I had a guy in Florida many years ago. I was speaking to 400 doctors. And this guy comes in and says, I think I'd like to have you consult me. Do you do consulting? I said, "Certainly." Sure. I go to this guy's beautiful house. I mean, it's a big friggin' house. He had a boat in the back, you know, in Miami. And he had a, of Miami Vice look at place and paintings and parties and cars in the garage and all this stuff. He says, I got a problem. I said, What? I make six point two nine, no, six point two seven million dollars this year. But I owe the government, US, $329,000. I'm back taxed. I, I can't seem to get ahead on my finances and taxes. It's interesting. $6.27 million, and he's behind $329,000 in his taxes. Why? He doesn't have a value on that. He has a value on all those other things. When I was at his office, I met this assistant that was just an assistant that was typing for him. She made $24,000 a year, $2,000 a month. She was saving 20% of it, $400 a month, and was closer to financial independence than he was. Has nothing to do with how much you make. Has everything to do with how you manage what you make, and the hierarchy of your values dictate how you manage it. Tell me what your values are. I'll tell you how you're gonna what, what's going to happen you in your future in money. Change your values, change your financial
1: destiny. All of them are changeable and transformable. Yeah, I mean, money is so fascinating. There's this this gentleman who was very very influential in the world of financial planning, but he always said his name's Dick Wagner. He said. Money is the most powerful and pervasive secular force on the planet. And that story and what we've been talking about makes me think about that because this guy's making six point some million dollars a year. But that money has him like so distracted because of this unexamined life, presumably or something like that, that he doesn't know his values and look what can happen. You can have all this money that perhaps we're telling ourselves, maybe that's a script he's telling himself, the more money I get, the happier I'm going to be or it'll be okay when I make seven. But when we don't, like you're saying, money could distract us from our values. And if we don't value saving, then... If, if you don't value having money work for you, you're going to be a slave all your life to finance. Mm-hmm. And the
0: people who say money's I'm not into money are the ones dedicated to paying these slaveries. Mm-hmm. I found 10 things that, that made a difference in financial depends. I can tell whether somebody's going to be financial depends by asking 10 questions. And a guy came to me and asked me these questions when I was 27 years old. And prior to that, I was good at, saving money for things, mm-hmm. for the trip, for a, a bicycle or, you know, a, a car. I was saving for things. I never saved for the sake of having money work for me mm-hmm. until that day when he walked in my office and he was a financial planner. He says, I have got 10 questions. If you don't know how to answer, you are basically telling me you have no intention of being financially dependent. And I said, okay. And I was cocky and, you know, thinking I was a doctor at the time and Okay, let's throw those questions at me. What exactly is your total assets right now? And I kind of knew what an asset was, but I said, well, what do you mean by an asset? So I'm <laughs> a stupid. student. And he gave me some samples of it. And I tried to ran it off in my mind and I realized I didn't have a lot of assets. I had liabilities. And he said, write that down. Number two question, what are your total liabilities? I knew those better than I knew my assets. <laughs> I knew my debts and I knew my student loan and I knew my car loan and I knew, how much I was having to pay every month. And I, I, and I wrote those down, boom, 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 boom. He said, great. So now what's your total net worth right now, positive or negative? Assets minus liability, I wrote them down. And I was negative. I had a net worth of zero and, be, and, and, and I was in the hole. I owed more than I, was, I, I had. He said, all right, good. Now, number four, what is the passive annual income that you would love to have that you're going to call financial independence right now? That if you don't know where you are, you don't know where you're going, and you don't have a strand to get there, you have no plan of getting there. That's like getting an Uber and saying, I don't know where I am. I don't know where I'm going, but come pick me up. Same kind of stupidity. I said $100,000 a year. This is 1982. Because I thought $100,000, that'd be like 600000 today. But I thought $100,000 a year, that's, I could live on that. So I wrote that number down back then. And I'd made $100,000 already in a year. So I thought if I could do that actively, I could live on that passively. Of course, that was before the marriage and the kids and the house and all the other stuff. So I wrote that number down. I said, great. He said, great. So you know your assets, you know your liabilities, you know what your net worth is, you know what you're going towards as a net that you need for your passive income. Great. What is the average interest rate you could earn on your investments with your knowledge today? And my knowledge was like zero. And I thought, well, what's the interest rate in the banks? Around 7% back in 82. I thought 8%. <laughs> okay, now inflation was around 15 at the time. <laughs> yeah, But I thought 8%, I mean, that's how naive it was. I've read 8%. He goes, fantastic. And he said to me, now the next one's, what is the interest rate that's going to average over the next 40 years of your life? What is our average interest rate? Well, it was very high back at that time, but it went back down to two and three and stuff, and under two for a while. But it averages around 4 to 5% over the long century. Uh, I've said 3%. And I, he said, you sure? I said, I don't know. <laughs> I said, well, hmm, maybe we better 8 and 4% we'll make. He said, okay, because over the time, it'd probably be about 4%. Great. I said, now, now that you know you got 4%, you got 8%, that means you're really only making 4% on the, what you gain and what you're eroding, mm-hmm. right? Now, what is the gross net worth that you need, the total net worth that you need, Earning 8% minus 4% to give you that $100,000 per year. So that's 4%. Four into 100% is 25. I needed multiplied 25 times 100,000. That's 2.5 million. I need $2.5 million today, today, to give me financial independence today. And I, I said, okay, I need $2.5 million. And if I do that, I earn 8% minus 4%, I'll get $100,000 a year and I'll be set. Fantastic. He says, okay, now the next question is, what's the shortfall between your current net worth and that net worth? (laughs) Well, I was $100,000 in debt, so I need $2.6 million. Okay, now I got those. I got eight questions there. I got them all figured out. Number nine comes. Number nine is, how do you intend to do it? Now, that's when my jaw tightened up. My stomach went no a knot, My eyes got red. My ass got itchy, excuse my expression. I had a headache throbbing. And I had to get up and walk and get some water because I did not see any light at the end of the tunnel because I was at that time saving $200 a month. How the heck am I going to get what I need there today? And I thought, okay, I need to be able to make $2.6 million in 24 hours. I need $1.3 million in two days, in the next two days. I kept dividing it up and extending it into longer periods of time until I re- re- it's going to take me decades to get this thing. I finally decided, okay, I'm going to get myself 18 years. I'm going to do it and divide that up and come up with it. And it came out around $21,000 a month average. And I had to put into investments to get there. I still needed a hundred times what I was saving now to get there. And I was still overwhelming with a headache. And I thought, how the heck am I going to do that? That was number nine. And number nine was overwhelming. And I was doubting, am I ever going to be financially? financial aid? Is this a fantasy? Do I need to calm it down? It's not much, $100,000 a year. And I'm having all this turmoil and conflict about this wealth building. I went to the bathroom again, and I, I just sat there. I go, am I been living in a delusion? Is that why I don't, people don't want to look at this? Because they are actually rather live in their fantasy and dissociate than actually ground themselves and face the truth? And I said, Am I? is this real? Am I going to be committed to this or am I not? And I really got grounded that day. And then I came up with an in- insight. I can start out saving $200 a month. And then the next quarter, I can make it $300. And the next quarter, I make it $500. And the next quarter, I make it $750. And the next quarter, I made it 1000 And then I'd run a projection. If I saved $1,000 a month, where will I be? And I calculate a million dollars in 34 years. Still not a financially advantage, but at least I got to be a millionaire. Then I decided I was going to make an automated savings of 1000 and increase it 10% every quarter. And I made a commitment to do that. I made it at 1100 and then I reran another projection for the next 3 months. And then I did it at 1210 a Pascal triangle and I ran another projection. And then I did it at $1344 and I ran another projection. Each time I was knocking off 10% of the time it was taking to get financially independent. Mm. And then I was at 2000 and I ran a projection and I'm down to 16 years. And then I made it and every 2 years it doubled by a Pascal triangle. And it was 4000. When it hit $4000 a month I also paid off some debts and the extra money went into my savings. And then I kept increasing in 10%. I made a commitment to doing that. And it was five and six. And and all of a sudden it was 8,000. And then 16,000. And then 32,000. I kept doubling it every two years. And I started having business opportunities because when you manage money wisely, you get more money to manage. 64,000, 128,000. I went up to 256,000 a month going into savings. And my financial repentance went skyrocketing. And then I did multiple. I started setting goals for multiples of financial independence. In the meantime, I kept my lifestyle moderated and simple, and I never raised my lifestyle unless I raised my savings and taxes equal amounts to govern me. And then I ended up doing that, and it crescendoed. Until now, I live on one of the biggest yachts on the planet. I travel all over the world, hang out with some very amazing people. And it's because I had a, not immediate gratification, but to long-term vision and patience and methodical, strategic executive functioned goals that were not fantasies that were real objectives. And I incrementally did that. And each time I did that, I prioritized my business, delegated more, freed me up to serve more people in more efficient ways, and be accountable to make my role, my accountability to serve people. And there's no reason why a person can't do that in their life. No, there's no reasons.
1: Thank you for that story. There is, again, I like your answers because we got so many doors we can go down. And this automation, it, it takes one less behavior or decision that we have to make. You talk a bit about compound interest. Albert Einstein said it was the eighth wonder of the world. Eighth wonder of the world. <laughs> and we can see that through Warren Buffett as he built his wealth in the, the latter part of his his life. Where my question is coming from, in, in your new book, in um, chapter six or treasure six, you talk about wealth. And this is in alignment with what you were just saying. And in there, you you bring the original or the origin word of wealth, you, you stated, which was originally we, well-being. How, as you went through that journey and your savings increased and increased and more opportunities came, like you mentioned, I interviewed an individual who wrote a book, bringing in like, what would Buddha do at work? A lot of Buddhism and in a relationship with money. And he talked about how the Buddha said there's this intoxication effect of money. So I'm curious, as you were starting to go, there's sometimes this intoxication of effect of money where going back to that quote that I said, money is the most powerful and pervasive secular force on the earth. How did you stay true to your original word of wealth, of well-being? As more money came in, how did you continue to stay congruent in your own highest values and not be tempted by this? It, maybe you were by this intoxication of money. Well, money is not the intoxication. It's the illusion you make around it. The, money yeah, is okay. money.
0: My dream when I was 17 years old to travel the world and teach. That's it. Today, I'm financially independent. I travel the world and teach. That's my dream. That's what I do. My money goes to philanthropic things. It's not about, I don't need any more for me. Mm -hmm. So I learned something. That if you have zero money and you add a dollar, the value of that dollar is
1: 100%.
0: If you have $10, you add a dollar. The value of that extra dollar is 10%. In $100, it's 1%. $1, $1,000, 0.1%. 10,000.01%, 100,000.001%, 10,000.01%, 100,000.001%, a million.001%, a .00000001%. So as you accumulate money, the valuation of an additional dollar diminishes. So if you don't have a cause that inspires you, that's meaningful, that's philanthropic, that goes in the opposite direction, to counterbalance, the devaluation of the money, you will plateau or you'll buy clutter mm. and you'll become hedonistic and debaucherous instead of philanthropic. Money without meaning leads to debauchery, but money with meaning leads to philanthropy. Mm. And so you, you constantly have a cause, a spiritual cause, whatever it is to you that inspires you. And that doesn't have to be religious, but in spiritual cause is what inspires you, making a difference. I have a friend that lives on the ship there. He basically is going and helping literacy, a half a billion children with literacy around the world. That's his cause. He just keeps making money for the sake of making those difference in the kids. He's got a great life. It's not his focus. His focus is the kids. So the greater the cause, the greater the wealth potential. But if you're just li- living for the sake of financial credit, that's just the starting point. That's just the starting point. If you're living for just so you can have this magnificent, you know, luxurious life, that's fine. I'm not against that. But that, that's not where meaning is. That's mm-hmm. not that's going to be the fulfillment. That's going to end up being debauchery. And I have a friend that used to have a giant uh, railroad company, one of the biggest in the country. And he finally sold it. He didn't have meaning in work. He didn't have something to be focused on. And I watched him deteriorate, start drinking and doing things because he had no meaning learned. It's important to find something that you love doing that is inspiring and meaningful. I've consulted with enough very wealthy people that it's important to have that in life. Your fulfillment in life is how well you do a service and how well you do it
1: fair exchange and get a reward that's meaningful. Yeah, that meaning, it's critical. It's making me think of this research that examined, I can't remember the dollars, but uh, financially independent individuals. And it was something like 20, 35% of respondents, or I'm not quoting exactly, talked about this idea once they got there, I think it was 10 million liquid assets, it, it, that they they felt this sensation of like, that's it. There's no like big, big party. There's no big revelation. I don't feel different. I mean, the hedonic attitude ad- there. Pardon? It's all relative. All relative, yeah. but without the meaning. I mean, is that with yeah. void of that meaning, then it, it's just a piece of paper. Well, what's interesting is that Greg Norman, who's the great golfer, uh, said that the second he made a
0: hundred million dollars, he started hanging out with people that had a billion, and he built a mm-hmm. of it. Yeah, <laughs> it's all relative. Yeah. You know, you can you can go down and feel wealthy in front of some people and poor in front of another. That that that's. As long as you compare yourself to others and not compare your daily actions to what's highest on your value, you're going to end up being emotional and distraught and distracted and not meaningful. The mm-hmm. meaning between the pairs of opposites mm-hmm. and the meaning has been able to keep your mind balanced in your pursuit of what's meaningful to you.
1: Yeah, and I think that's where it comes full circle to the top of our conversation when you talked about when we sit in this victim mentality and look for solutions outside we're always staying in that mentality. And now here as we come full circle talking about wealth being around well-being, but that illusion of wealth or not illusion, that wealth comes from within us. And like our own perception of ourselves and being content with our values and who we are and the meaning we bring. Our wealth is our gratitude.
0: Mm. Our executive center is also called the gratitude center. The media prefrontal cortex. They've just done it in Scientific American, I believe in either August or September edition of Scientific American, they had a fantastic article on the media prefrontal cortex, the executive center, they call it. And they now confirmed it, that that is the most integrative center, the most ontological identity of self there. And so we have our most identical, our true identity expressed when we're living in alignment congruently with what we value most. That's It's a beautiful scientific description of this. So when we're doing something that is truly meaningful, truly priority, the mean, as Aristotle said in his book on the golden mean, between the vices, the true virtue in the center, our authentic self, when we follow that path, we have the greatest fulfillment and we don't need to go and fill ourselves full with crap. Excuse the expression. We're doing something that's meaningful relating to other human beings. If I, If you ask yourself, Go to the moment when you've had the most fulfillment line. You'll find out that it's something you did that made a difference in people's lives. It felt something that you've, you felt fulfilled. Mm-hmm. So you might as well just face that and not try to buy your way into fulfillment. Serve your way into fulfillment. And you'll deserve those things that you want to buy. But, it, you know, it can be a clutter. I'm, I'm a minimalist. I, I keep simple stuff. I don't buy a bunch of stuff now. Because I realized I, I had 11 homes at one time. My wife was into all that. She passed away. So, I, I, I'm not into any of that stuff. What I'm into is doing what I'm doing right here, today, right now, on this presentation, is where it's at. Because there's somebody out there that might listen to this, that might have a trajectory change, might open their heart, might see within their capacity and do something. And they might go and say,
1: Thank you to you and I. That's what it's about. Mm-hmm. Despite you're in Texas and I'm in Alberta, I can feel that, that desire to wanna be here. 50 years later, I can, you know, doing these conversations, I could tell that. You do wanna be, be there for whomever's listening, who this is gonna resonate. And I think that's, that's clear in you finding your meaning. Sean, so when I was a t- teenager,
0: I was born with an arm deformity, an arm and leg deformity and had to wear braces on child. And I had a speech impediment. And I was told in first grade, I would never be able to read, I'll never be able to write, never be able to communicate, never mount a thing, never go very far in life. And I dropped out of school and I was a street kid from 13 to 18. And, well, 17 a week before my 18th birthday. I met a gentleman at 17, right? November. So it's, it's the 50th year coming up in a couple of weeks. I met this gentleman that spoke to me in a way that no one ever spoke to me. It inspired me to believe that maybe I could overcome my learning problems and someday become intelligent and learn how to properly speak and be able to read and be able to write. And when I discovered at age 18 that that was possible, I've been on a mission since. What did he say to you? He just said that we have a body, we have a mind, and we have a soul. The body must be directed by the mind. The mind must be guided by the soul in order to maximize who we are as a human being in this world. And that we want to set goals for ourselves, our family, our community, our city, our state, our nation, our world from now to 100, 120 years. And he says, and what you think about, what you visualize, what you affirm, and what you feel, and what you take actions on becomes your destiny. And you have command over those. So take command and don't let anything on the outside from the past to the future distract you from the present of taking action in a way that makes a difference. Those things made a short shift in my thinking process, and I started to apply what he said back then. And I made a commitment that night that someday when I'm his age, because he was in his 80s, that I'm going to do the same thing for some young 17-year-old kid.
1: In the meantime, I'm going to practice. So I've been doing it ever since. Well, practice you've been doing for the last 50 years. There's a final question that I ask everyone and I want to respect our three minutes here, but let's say now we fast forward to end of life, however old you are, and you're somewhere in the world that brings you peace sitting on a front porch and you're just looking out at maybe it's an ocean, a meadows, a mountain, whatever brings you peace. And you decide to take out your your notebook and write a letter to your children's children on what you learned is important to have a happy, healthy relationship with money what would be a theme to that letter? I would say the same thing we just got through talking about. I was thinking I would, that. I, You know what I do? I wouldn't write a letter. I would
0: make sure I get the link from your, your interview today and I would send it to him. Okay. More
1: efficient. <laughs> that's, that's true. You're an efficient guy. Thank you so much for joining me today. With the last couple of minutes here, you've got a new book out. You've got 40 other books. People who are listening who want to learn more about you if they haven't already, where would you point them to? Where's the most efficient way to find more information about yourself? simply go to drdmartini.com my website or
0: dr Martini's show which is the the you know podcast show just go to the, the website they could spend the rest of their life on there mm-hmm. they're gonna have to believe in they're a Buddhist because they're gonna have to believe in reincarnation to be able to get everything because you can't get it all in there one one life. You get, it's, it's so there's so much on there it's gonna keep busy.
1: There is a great amount of really good information.
0: Yeah go to go to drdmartini.com take advantage of that go get the book Seven Secret mm-hmm. Treasures or add the other book because uh, you can't put your hand in the pot of glue without some of the glue sticking. And s- some of that glue, is uh,
1: it can make a difference. It certainly can. Well, thank you so much for your time today. I really, really it. this conversation. Thank you for tuning in this week. As I mentioned earlier, if you can take two minutes and leave a review on Apple Podcasts, that would be greatly appreciated. I hope you have a great week. And until next time, take care and enjoy. I'm on a mountain. Without a top, my wealth is measured in how I spend my time But now I write
0: freedom story with every breath inhaled Money is not the boat of life, it's just the wind in the sail